0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ.
2: Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, Keir Starmer's plan of cleaning up Labour unravels as the party deals with one crisis after another. The Home Office is another great idea to solve the migrant crisis. Let TikTok influencers de-influence those looking to cross the channel. And Meghan Markle is to return to podcasting, oh joy, after signing a dynamic contract with female-founded company Lemonada Media. But let's begin with a story that's shocking Britain tonight, leaving ordinary Brits second-guessing where they will be safe in public. Comedian Paul Curry has been at the centre of controversy following reports that he hounded out a Jewish member of the audience at his show. It's alleged that Curry encouraged the crowd to chant Get the F out and free Palestine at Israeli ticket holder Liav Eitan in the Soho Theatre in London on Saturday night because he refused to stand up and applaud a Palestine flag. In response, Soho Theatre say... They will not tolerate intimidation of audience members due to their nationality, race, religion, or beliefs. They also added, such appalling actions are unacceptable and have no place on our stages now or ever. We will not be inviting Paul Curry back to perform at our venue. Meanwhile, the police confirmed they know about the incident. We are aware, they said, of the incident that took place at Soho Theatre on Saturday evening. We understand why it was upsetting for those involved. And we note the venue has issued a statement confirming they are looking into what happened. A report was submitted to the police on Monday and inquiries are ongoing. We contacted Curry and his agent but have not received responses to our inquiries. But I was joined by Liav Eitan, the individual at the heart of the controversy. And I started by asking him this.
3: Yes, certainly, Um, I... I've lived in London five years now, and the past four months have been something special, yeah, to say the least. You say special, but I mean, I presume you mean not in a good way. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all.
2: I mean, what has happened to the world? I mean, I was going to say the Western world because it seems to be happening in New York. It seems to be happening in Paris. It seems to be happening in you know all sorts of places that that I would hold as you know beacons of freedom and democracy and all of that, and yet. So many of these people who are demonstrating on behalf of the Palestinian cause
3: seem to not know the difference between terrorists and innocent people. I am as confused as you are. Mm. I'm not. I'm not sure why LGBT people think that this is their struggle. Right. I'm not. i Queers really... for Palestine is going to be one of the strangest
2: slogans ever, right? That caught me by surprise. Yeah. Absolutely. Tell us about the incident itself, because you were in the theatre, I believe, on Saturday night. Sort of spur of the moment, you decided
3: to go to the Soho Theatre. Had you ever heard of this guy, Paul Curry? No, never. Uh, We we actually bought the tickets just a few hours before the show, just because we were in that area and and I had discounted tickets at Soho Theatre.
2: Okay, and so you bought these tickets. Small
3: theatre, I presume. It's not terribly large. Not terribly large, but I, I believe it was a full house, about okay. one to two hundred people. OK, the... so a reasonable number. And so
2: what was most of the show? I mean, I've seen some of this guy's material, and it seems a bit, shall we say, odd. I didn't find it particularly funny. He's kind of yeah. like a shock comedian, isn't he?
3: Yeah, it's it's a bit bizarre. It, mm. it was uh, non-verbal until, right. until the very end. And does that mean he doesn't speak? Yes, so it's right. more like music, and gestures. OK. Um, anything from eating cornflakes with milk and spitting it out on the audience... Right. ..to hitting them with a with a puppet the shape of a hand on, on the okay. head.
2: OK. How odd. I mean, did it was it funny to you? Were you laughing at any of it? I, I found it entertaining. Yeah? And yeah. OK. Do
3: you see a lot of comedy shows? Is that something you do? Um, I, I do, mostly mostly to stand-up comedy. Yeah. I, I've never seen anything like what Paul Curry did there. Oh, OK. And so,
2: at the end, he picks up two flags. Tell us what happened.
3: Yes, so he... Picked up a Ukraine flag followed by a Palestinian authority flag. Mm. Um, and then as, as, as soon as he got them out of the box, he put them back in the box. So it wasn't... It didn't feel like a, a part of the show, really. Right, OK. So he didn't wave them around or anything like that? Um, so he held the Ukraine flag, held it like this, yeah. then the same thing with the Palestine flag, okay. then back... back OK. In the... And at what point did he then ask people to stand and applaud? So about five minutes later, at the very end of the show... Um, so he got people to go on their feet and clap for him, um, and then my friend and I didn't, because we didn't really appreciate the comparison between Ukraine and Palestine, I, yeah. I didn't feel like that was... OK. Uh, and how far away from the stage were you sitting? So, right at the side of the stage. Mm. So, it was pretty bad seats, to be honest, Al- almost at the back.
2: Right. Um,
3: yeah. But he could obviously see that you weren't standing up. I was surprised by that because I, I could barely see the show. So right. I'm surprised that he could see that okay. I was not standing up. I mean, were
2: there people standing up in front of you? Yes. So how did you... I mean, do you think somebody told him, perhaps? He maybe had an earpiece or
3: something? No, I guess he he has a good grasp of the audience. Right. He probably saw it from the corner of his eye or something. OK. He must have bugged him. And so he still hadn't
2: really spoken at this point?
3: Yeah, exactly. So he said, um, thanks, everyone, for coming, mm. you know, that that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then just randomly turned at us, like all the way to his right, and says, uh, "And thanks to these two for not standing up and clapping."
2: Right. Okay. And then what happened?
3: And then he sort of lingers at, like, on us, as yeah. if expecting us to apologize like for not clapping. Yeah, like as if waiting for us to apologize or to stand up and clap. Right. Um, so I just replied, "Thank you for that Palestine flag." I yeah. thought that would be a good explanation for him for why I didn't clap. Yes. And at this point, were people still clapping, or had they stopped? That's a good question. I, I can't remember exactly. I think, I think there was a bit of silence mm. at, at that stage. I think right. people were surprised about this. OK. And so when you said, thank you for the Palestine flag, then what happened? He seemed quite, um, quite surprised, quite taken aback. Uh, so he muttered something about that being a part of the show. He asked me if I was being sarcastic. Mm. Then uh, he asked me if I, en- if I enjoyed the show. Still to the mic in front of 200 people, right? Yes. Um, So you must have felt sort of slightly self-conscious, perhaps, or did you feel intimidated at that point? At that point, I I didn't feel very intimidated because I'm I'm used to dealing with anti-Semitic bullies, to be honest. So he's staring at you, the crowd have gone a bit
2: quiet. Did he then start to kind of rile them up a bit? Because I'm told that they were chanting. What happened?
3: Yeah, so he asked me... um, if I enjoyed the show, and I said yes up until that moment, and, yeah. and that's the moment he he just turned. Right. Um, I think that's the point he understood that I'm not I'm not on his side and right. I'm not I don't support his cause. Right. And then. And was that when he told you to get out? That's when he started shouting that he's from Belfast and therefore knows everything about ceasefires, right. Right. Um, and shouted ceasefire now. And then he started shouting to get the, the f out of right. the of the theater. Uh-huh. Um, called us some pretty illustrative names. Oh, really? Yeah.
2: Right. And what sort of names can you say? <laughs> or they Mother too? F. <laughs> yeah, Mother F, okay. Yeah, we saw that one. Um, and then presumably that's when the chanting started because that's the bit that sounded quite frightening.
3: Yeah, yeah. So um, as he was shouting and cursing at us, we started gathering our things and, in order to leave. Yeah. Now, our only way out of the theater was through the stage. Right. Uh, So we actually had to to pass right next to him, right in front of him. Mm -hmm. And at that point, he brought up uh, his Palestine flag again and started waving it at us and tried to get the entire crowd to chant with him, ceasefire now and free Palestine. But you managed to get out and you must have been shocked.
2: I was shocked. Even though you say you're kind of used to what the circumstances can be
3: like. Right. I, I, I was shocked that he continued this confrontation. He yeah. had so many opportunities to de-escalate. I don't know why why he chose to continue and I don't know why he chose to put us in danger uh, because when you're on the stage and you're holding a mic and you're inciting an entire crowd against two members of the audience, that could get out of hand Well, it could have very got quickly.
2: very, very out of hand very quickly. I mean, imagine I, if somebody had grabbed you or there had been some physical confrontation.
3: I think it... It's very likely that if we had refused to leave the yeah. space, if we had lingered for over a minute... Right. ..I think it would have come to physical violence. Yes.
2: He may well be performing, I think, in Glasgow. Um, do you think he should be allowed to?
3: I think whatever venue he performs in should take very seriously um, protecting the crowd from him.
2: Mm. Yes, I think so. And this has been a terrible week for you. Um, I'm very sort of um, impressed with the way you're taking it because obviously the
3: police have said they've been involved, have they spoken to you yet? They, they emailed me um, yesterday.
2: Okay, and are you speaking to them at some point?
3: Yes, they mentioned they wanna call me in for, for some questioning.
2: Yeah, okay, well, we'll see where that goes. But Leo, thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. And Leah Tan there telling us about what happened to him in that comedy club, absolutely outrageous we'll be talking some more about it uh, with our panel we did of course contact Paul Curry and his agency but we've received no response thus far this is the one and only independent Republican Mike Graham coming up once again Keir Starmer's flip flops on controversies within his party no wonder the Tories say he has more positions in the Kama Sutra we'll discuss the state of the Labour Party coming up next Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Labour's given the Tories a Valentine's Day gift as they deal with the second embarrassing public breakup this week. This time it's Heinberg candidate Graham Jones who's been suspended for making anti-Israel remarks. The Conservatives are clearly loving Labour's crisis and today borrowed Cupid's arrow to fire a shot at the opposition leader, releasing the Starmer Sutra, a guide on how to hold multiple positions At the same time, Labour responded with a modern age mixtape creating a Rishi Sunak Spotify playlist that includes songs like Don't Go Breaking My Pledge and Stairway to Recession. Not really. I don't think so. Joining me now in the studio to discuss this all uh, is journalist Eve Tolfik. Journalist, of course, at The Telegraph, Steve Edgerton, and Spikes Online columnist, Ms Ella Whelan. Very good evening to all of you. I mean, you don't want politicians trying to be funny, do you? I mean, it never really works terribly well. It's a bit cheesy. I mean, I thought the Starmer Sutra thing was all right. Um, but the playlist, I mean, stairway to recession. I mean, it's got too many syllables for a start, is not it? <laughs>
4: I oh, know. I mean, I think a Rwanda-based song might be a bit,
2: a bit more appropriate. <laughs> Help me, Rwanda. I can already yeah. do that one for them. That's it, exactly.
4: Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it is, it's, again, the farcical UK government. I mean, how, how far are they going to take this? Can they actually concentrate on sorting
2: this country? Yeah, I mean, that would be nice, wouldn't it? That but, would I be mean, great. It hasn't been a great week for, uh, for Keir Starmer, Stephen. I mean, you know, here's a guy who's 20-odd points ahead, or was. He's now, you know, had that lead cut, I think, in a poll today. It shows that the, the, the two parties are a lot closer together. And he's kind of just tripping himself up at every turn because I'm sure we're going to see many, many more Labour candidates and potential candidates having to pull out or be disowned because of things that they've said in the past, particularly about Israel. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that this issue
5: of anti-Semitism has sort of plagued the Labour Party for a long time. Mm. And Keir Starmer has this line that the Labour Party has changed under his leadership. And I think these stories this week show that the Labour Party clearly hasn't changed in many ways, And Labour's response to this original story at the weekend to do with their Rochdale candidate, Mm. originally they stood by him. Yeah. And and now they've kind of reverse ferreted, and as as the Conservatives are pointing out,
2: have sort of changed their position. So it seems like they've handled this very, very badly. They really have, because, you know, when we all watched um, Laura Kunzberg, I don't know if you bothered doing that on a Sunday, but I do, Mm. um, you know, they had Pat McFadden there saying more or less, well, he's apologised, so so that's OK. And then when the Starmer came out later and said well, we found more evidence, so then we had to suspend him, meaning that the first lot of evidence didn't matter. Mm.
6: Oh, yeah. Well, they use this term, full and wholesome apology. Yeah. If... Well, it's like as if that makes it better. Right. I mean, the, the interesting thing was that that meeting went on Um, Ali said what he said and Jones said what he said and presumably no-one at the time in the meeting raised any objection. No, of course not,
2: because they all agree with him.
6: What was, I mean, outright... and the the most basic kind of anti-Semitism, Jews in the media, yeah, yeah. you know, that's just like, it's its almost cliche, mm. it's so obvious. Um, and I think the, you know, the, I mean, the problem with Keir Starmer and the Labour Party's approach to anti-Semitism is that they made it all about that it was evil Jeremy Corbyn and that wiping him out and any of his friends out was going to fix it. Obviously, Corbyn had a big issue with anti-Semitism and he turned a blind eye to it too many times. But it ignores the fact that the problem runs much, much deeper... Mm. And, you know, this is the awkward thing that they don't want to talk about. The re- It's not that you have all these people in the Labour Party who sort of, um, apart from Ali, go on these sort of ridiculous anti-Semitic rants. It's that they think they want to curry favour with particular sections yes. of votes. And they think that, for example, Muslim voters are open to uh, discussions about Palestine straying into anti-Semitism. So they kind of just... Feed that yeah. and they make a cynical decision saying we want votes so we'll just throw Jews under the yeah. bus and that's the problem I mean as for the, it, it, it's all quite infantile actually and as for the um, you know the baiting on social media with all these um, vid- mixtapes, videos and yeah. pictures I mean you just know there's like 20 year olds running their social yeah. media accounts and right. it feels like they're also making the policies it's it, all really embarrassingly childish it, it, is,
2: it, really, it really is very very childish let's have a listen to and a watch to some of the things that have been said. Graham Jones uh, first of all, we've got uh, with his in flagrante moment.
7: Israel again, you know. And I'm sure that all these people think when <clears throat> they go on, but you will not get Israel over the line unless we go at them hard.
2: Eve, I think it's right, isn't it? That uh, what Ella says, there, there's a lot of posturing that goes on on the left. Yes. So that, you know, uh, they want certain people to believe that they're anti Israel, even if they might not necessarily be.
4: Although I would actually question how much anti-Israel sentiment runs through the public itself. And is Mm. is this a smart move for for the left at all? Is this a smart move for anyone? I don't think it is. I
7: I mean a lot
4: of people are pro-Israel and there's a lot of discussion around it. And I don't think the the anti-Semitism stance is particularly going to curry a favour.
2: Well it's not. And it's also a horrible stance. I mean that's the main problem with it, is that you know, if you sort of run um, aligned through most local Labour Party organisations, you will probably find quite a number of people there who will say these things. Yeah, right?
4: I mean, Ali in 2014 was said, um, he, it, it, I think it was Rochdale was an Israel-free zone. Yeah, yeah. It was quoted as saying, yeah, he's still been allowed to run. And yeah. as, you, as you said quite rightly earlier, people have ignored prior comments. You know, yeah. They needed more evidence. Right.
2: I mean, is this a a battle they can never win, Stephen, in terms of checking people out? Because surely it can't be that hard in this day and age to find out what people have said. Well, I think the point that made was fantastic is that the
5: Labour Party feel pressured by these pro-Palestine, Activists we yeah. even follow them around. Mm. People like Angela Rayner, yeah. screamed at constantly at public right. events by these people. And if Labour MPs aren't concerned about that pressure, and it's kind of understandable in one sense because they rely on the Muslim population to vote for them en masse generally. If yeah. You look at somewhere like a seat like Rochdale. The main sort of issue in that campaign, in that by-election, has been Gaza. It's been nothing to do with domestic politics. Yeah. It's utterly bizarre. Yeah. And this is why, I think, the Labour Party have a sort of got to, Continue to return to
2: these issues. And people like Guido Fawkes are going to keep finding sort of, you know, bits of audio tape, bits of, uh, you know, recordings of meetings. Let's have a listen to what Keir Starmer had to say about all of it today.
7: Certain information came to light over the weekend in relation to the candidate. There was a fulsome apology. Further information came to light yesterday calling for decisive action. So I took decisive action. It is a huge thing to withdraw support for a Labour candidate during the course of a by-election. It's a tough decision, a necessary decision, but when I say the Labour Party has changed under my leadership, I mean it.
2: Yeah, well, he might mean it, but uh, that was actually yesterday rather than today, and that was before Graham Jones got outed. So, I mean, he was already out of date by the time he said that. But another disturbing event, you were talking about people being followed around. Tobias Elwood, um, last night had a whole bunch of demonstrators outside his house, mm-hmm. where he was with his family and his children, um, and the police basically didn't move them away. They just said, "Well, they've got a right to protest." Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never believed, I've never seen anything like this situation in Britain.
6: Well, I mean, it's you know, it's a bit like what um Derek Simons writes about in his book, Israelophobia, that mm. there is such a, a you have to question why there is such an obsession. With Israel over any other state that enacts, you know, things that you might disagree yeah. with, and you know, the, the thing, the thing that's really annoying me about the Graham Jones comments is that I don't have a problem with someone saying f Israel or or criticizing Israel yeah. or whatever. That's fine. That's you know, I don't, I don't think that's obviously anti-Semitic. The thing that was anti-Semitic, what he said, which no one seems to be picking up on. Is that he suggested that Jews who you know live in here mm. British Jews who want to go and defend and help their fellow Jews at a time when they are being murdered mm. for being Jewish yes. you know, to stand against Hamas. Right that that was something that they should be locked up for. His, his opposition was to the idea that Jews should stand up for themselves. Yeah. That was the suspect part yes. for me, not the criticising Israel. And we've had the last 24 hours, I did a bit of radio last night, has been sort of lots of people sort of chin-scratching saying, well, the IHRA definition says this, and shouldn't you be allowed yeah. to criticise Israel? And it's like you're missing the point. Right. The point was that he was saying it's bad to go against Hamas. And that's been our problem all along. Right on all of these protests um, and the reason why, you know, I might have... I have lots of criticism, Israel, but I wouldn't join any of those protests because they seem to be incapable of criticising Hamas. And that's surely the most important exactly thing... Exactly right. ..to do today. And which is
2: exactly why many people in the Labour movement, not necessarily MPs, but other people in the party, won't actually um, admit that Hamas is a terrorist organisation. And you're right. You know, we spoke about this a little bit yesterday. The, um, you know, the, the suggestion that the IDF is exactly the same as ISIS... It's pretty offensive, really. It's It's just insane. You know, it's a a genuinely, you know, regular army uh, which is put together by a democratically elected government in a country uh, which is the only country, I think, in the entire region Mm. of the Middle East which doesn't have a dictator. That chops people's hands off when they go stealing things you know i mean the idea that you're somehow saying to people who are going to fight for their nation because many of them are dual citizens Mm. that they're doing exactly what shemima begum did and what various people jihadis did i mean it's absolutely mad isn't it this war in gaza i think has really shown an ugly face of many
5: people in britain yeah there are so many extremists here who are anti-semitic who are thugs who are going around and intimidating MPs like Tobias Elwood. Yeah. Now, I don't like Tobias Elwood for his politics generally. I right. think he's, he's a but he wouldn't wet turn Tory up at his MP, house, would you? But I wouldn't turn up at his house intimidating him
2: and his children no. and his family. And the woman who did that, it turns out, was a Labour candidate in that constituency. So it's not somebody who is just a run-of-the-mill sort of thug with a Palestinian scarf and a face mask on. It's somebody uh, who was selected as the party candidate to fight the Bournemouth by-election, Bournemouth Bournemouth election, a woman called Corrie Drew. You know,
5: it also seems there's a real double standard towards people who are supporting Hamas, mm. which is a terrorist organisation, and those who make offensive comments online. So you right. saw recently these people who were wearing those pro-Hamas badges. Yes, they got sentenced recently, but they kind of got off quite lightly. Yeah, because the he,
2: judge was clearly
5: a complete moron. Exactly. Whereas he, in those same instances of people saying offensive things over WhatsApp yeah. or sending offensive messages, he sent them to prison. Yeah, it seems like a complete double
2: standard. Well, we started the show this evening with. Uh, um, um, Israeli man, and we'll talk about it a little bit later on in the show, um, who was hounded and shouted at in a comedy club because he refused to stand up and applaud the Palestinian flag for pretty good reason, Mm. because he's an Israeli. He used to live in Israel. And he's come to London to have a life which he would hope would be relatively trouble-free. But he actually said to me, you know, I'm so used to having anti-Semitic bullying in the past four months since October the 7th. That actually, I wasn't that phased by it. Mean, it's horrific.
4: I think it's awful, and I think what's shocking is we forget the history of this. this- This started in 1917. It has its roots in colonialism. The British government essentially giving Zionists, who made up 10% of the population, free reign. And that has caused strife that is bowled over into each generation. And unfortunately now it's a device that is used by our government in order to garner votes. But I don't
2: think the historical conversation is helpful to anybody in this day and age because, you know, I used to do uh, an overnight radio show many years ago on Talk Sport. And in the end, we stopped talking about... Israel and Palestine, because you never get anywhere. And I don't know whether this particular incarnation of the argument and the war is going to make any difference to that. You You might be right, you know.
6: I I do think history is important to talk about because the problem that lots of people... The the mistake that lots of people make, I think, is they're still talking in terms of as if it was the 60s and 70s and the PLO was around and the political scene in Palestine was... Uh, very different it was about liberation it was you know to a great extent about sovereignty it yeah. wasn't uh what Hamas is about Hamas has one got no interest in democracy obviously no. got no interest in Palestinian sovereignty hasn't its covenant it, uh, like ISIS, a kind of death cultish yeah. kind of
2: destruction of Israel, this, it, destruction was, of Israel and is destruction my issue of the with Jews. It. So
6: because
4: it's so different from the original yeah, argument. But, but
6: so that I think it's then worth saying to people: you, you know, you have to understand what has changed mm. throughout the history of that region, and obviously, you know, th- the Middle East at large, Western intervention, all the rest of it has caused a horrendous problem. But it, it's it's almost I think there's a lot of people who you know. Uh, fellow sort of lefties who, I understand why they have such um, strongly held views on Israel but and in relation to, you know, colonialism or whatever, that was related to that time in the 60s and 70s. But what they can't do is manage to shift with the times and and readjust their yeah. opinions in relation to Hamas. Because whatever I thought about that 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 region previously, there's a red line, very clear red line post 7th of October, which is, are you siding with people who... Yeah. Weaponize, rape, brutalise, murder, mm. all the rest of and it? And they are. Or are you Or are, are you with them or against them? Well, they're it's with kind them.
2: Of that That's the problem. You know, and I was around during the Six Day War and during uh, all of the hijackings that Yasser Arafat organised for the PLO when they were flying planes backwards and forwards when they were blowing up, you know, um, places all over the Middle East. And there were no marches in Britain. There were no streets filled with people shouting, you know, from the river to the sea, they weren't here then, and that's part of the problem as well. That a lot of the people who are taking part in these kinds of activities are people who have recently... Look at one of the women who was wearing the parachute has come here from Gaza, you know. She came here to, to study. She's a sort of a radical feminist author of some kind, and she is now, you know, wearing a Hamas sort of badge of honour, if you like, but she's living in this country.
4: But, Mike, I would say as a British citizen who is... Um, has an immigrant father, my father's Egyptian. Lots of people have Uh, immigrant fathers. I am from a Christian family, and I've seen the impact directly that um, certain strains of Islam has has on society. But what concerns me is that people are going to go down this route of extremism again. They're going to liken, um, you know, the teachings of the Quran Mm. with Hamas, which is wrong. And, you know, Islamophobia was a huge problem in Britain. And whether it's anti-Semitism or Islamophobia, I think these are issues... Well, nobody's ever attacked any...
2: Muslim people walking down the street. Nobody's ever thrown any Muslims out of comedy clubs. I'm sorry. Islamophobia, I'm sure, does exist in some no, areas, it does. but it doesn't exist in the way that anti Semitism is now. No, this right is, this on is the a, different,
4: a different. But what is concerning is extremism in any form will be an issue, I yes, think, for the
2: British. But public. my point is, is this is now a daily episode, and people are having to see anti-Semitism in action every single day, whether it's in a comedy club, whether it's on a street. We've got some footage that we're going to show you later on in the show of a man in Scotland being told by a police officer to put away the Star of David that he's wearing because it might cause him a problem at a Palestinian march.
5: But, Mike, I think... That's where we are. You make a really good point, is that in the 1960s and before kind of mass immigration, multiculturalism, before that happened to Britain, we didn't have these huge issues of... ...debating foreign countries, wars in foreign countries, because we didn't have huge amounts of ethnic populations from those countries. And as I said earlier, this is so odd to me. It seems so utterly surreal that this by-election in Rochdale, traditionally an English town, is now dominated by George Galloway, who launched his campaign next to a Palestinian flag and he's calling himself Gaza George Galloway. That's completely bizarre to me and that's not a normal situation.
2: It really isn't a normal situation, but we'll be talking about this, I'm sure, for quite a long time to come. Uh, This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Coming up next, the Home Office is recruiting TikTokers, would you believe, in a last-ditch attempt to gain victory on the small boat crisis. Incredible as it is, we'll be talking about it after the break. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. With the Rwanda flight still firmly on the ground and Border Force jacking in their vessels and forking out to pay private firms to patrol for small boats instead, the government's now bringing in the big dogs to put a stop to illegal immigration once and for all. That's right, TikTokers. We all heard about the people smugglers using social media to entice migrants to travel via small boats. Well, now the Home Office is planning to push back by paying influencers to run mass advertising campaigns in countries such as Albania, Iraq... Egypt and Vietnam. I mean, for heaven's sake. I'm joined now by Talk TV's political correspondent Alicia Fitzgerald, the son's former political editor, Trevor Kavanagh, uh, an immigration lawyer, Harjap Singh, Bengal. Um, very, very good evening to all of you. Thank you for coming in to talk about this. Um, I mean, you're probably the most savvy social media person sitting here, and I say that it's only beautiful. because um, you're a lot younger than the rest of us. But, I mean... Um, TikTokers, really? I mean, why? What a waste of time!
8: Well, so the Home Office have said the reason for this is because apparently TikTok is the platform that people smugglers use to try and peddle lies, and that is the Home Office's. one, yeah. it's not mine. Um, in As order to, to the, try the
2: lies that get peddled by the government. Oh,
8: <laughs> no such thing, Mike. <clears throat> So, apparently, that's why they've chosen TikTok or yeah. any other social media platform, because, apparently, lots of people smugglers are actually actively using that platform right. in order to try and encourage people yeah. to make that journey from their country and to, to, to come across the Well, UK. I certainly
2: remember that when the ruling was handed down by the Supreme Court, I can't remember which one it was exactly, but there were certainly Albanian gangs putting out adverts to say, come on, come on in, they can't stop you now. Mm-hmm. Even the courts have said it's, it's OK. So, Trevor, I mean, this government comes up with one more bizarre sort of hit after another on this migration thing. I mean, we found out today that they're looking to um, sort of basically compulsory grab 16,000 homes from various rented, rentable landlords in, in the country to house the, the migrants who are currently in hotels. I mean, they, have, they seem to have a new idea every day.
9: Wonderful new idea that won't work. Exactly. won't work in the favour yeah. of people who live here already. Yeah. I mean, the idea of TikTokers dissuading people who have paid, who have paid a lot of money and trekked across the Sahara Mm. to get across the channel and risk their lives in small boats because the TikToker says, don't do it. Right. Uh, not very likely. But, no. Uh, and
2: before- also, I mean, the thing, the thing about the, the reason why people come hard-jump is that if they do come, they know that it's going to be very difficult for anybody to kick them out, as we've seen over the course of the last, I suppose, six months. You know, many, many asylum seekers and illegal migrants have been given asylum just so that the government could say, oh, we sort- sorted that out.
7: Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of the removals are down since 2010. There's been a downward trend all the way down to 2022. Mm. I mean, in 2010, we were sending back almost four times as much yeah. people as we're sending now. So the notion now that the government, this is seems to be the only sort of policies that they've got left, we're going to get that... Priya from Delhi or Marco from Albania say right. don't come to the UK. Right. So loads of migrants are not going to come. Right. It's absolutely bonkers. Right. And uh, it it defies belief that's going to spend half a million pound on this. Instead what they need to be doing is looking at the people who are advertising on TikTok, grabbing their IP mm. addresses, grabbing their phone numbers and sending groups or grab teams to go and grab them yeah. and put them in jail and give them. But it life. surely
2: somebody would say that's illegal, wouldn't they?
7: Well, no, it's not illegal to grab an international uh, people smuggler. Mm. But uh, what is futile is to expect uh, that, um, you know, people who are risking their life, like Trevor said, and risking freezing to death in the channel, um, along with their families, to actually just think, oh, someone said it on TikTok, I'll give it a miss yeah. this weekend.
2: The bottom line, of course, is Alicia, that they're coming here because, as I say, they know that if they do set foot on British soil, they'll probably be able to uh, to stay for as long as they want, if not for forever.
8: Definitely. So there's obviously the idea of there being a deterrent and that's something that the government seem to be pushing the most mm. out of all of this, It's whether it's the Rwanda scheme, whether it's this, they think that the best way to tackle this is by deterring people from coming in the first place, right. just just at the root cause. But I think the, the, the issue that lots of people have is just the fact that there isn't doesn't really seem to be much heavy lifting with the punishment element mm. of it when you do arrive here. And the, the funniest thing probably about all of this TikTok stuff is that some people actually asked the, the the TikTokers that were floated in this what they thought of mm. it. And lots, of, Most of them hadn't been contacted at all. They had no idea what was going on. But... Pretty much all of them said, absolutely not. There's no way you could get me to do that. No way at all. Yeah. And the reason for that being that lots of these influencers aren't political people. They're they, you know, they're posting videos about stuff not related remotely to politics and they're saying, hang on, I'm absolutely yeah. pushing a yeah. UK Home Office government right. message about migration. Well, this it is it. Be a bit- I
2: mean, I don't care how many 21-year-old sort of smart people from Oxford University have been hired by Downing Street, but, you know, are they really going to know who the most influential TikToker is in Saigon? Probably not, Trevor.
9: Well, the only person who's been quoted as a TikToker who's been approached, apparently, or named, has refused point blank to take <laughs> part. So I don't think that they want to be associated with telling... Who people, would want to be associated with this government? I mean, that's what I would say. Well, that is one of the biggest deterrents of all, of course. <laughs> but you're right. Once people actually set foot here on the shores of Britain illegally, mm. they disappear into the undergrowth or they're housed in on uh, Bibby Stockholm or yeah. given these new 16,000... Homes which they will be rent-free, effectively.
2: Yeah. So what's what's not to like? Exactly. And there's no wonder that people will continue to come. And, I mean, the housing situation is probably going to cause even more problems, Haljap, I think, because if you've got a hotel full of migrants, that's one thing. But as somebody pointed out today uh, in the report, I think, in The Times, if you've just bought your house for 300,000 quid and you find out you're living next to a family of illegal migrants who have now qualified for a free house, you're not going to be too happy. And I'm not suggesting that that means that the asylum seekers are in any way, you know, miscreants or anything like that. But, you know, if you've paid to live somewhere and somebody gets to move in
7: for free, it's not exactly a recipe for, for, for delight, is it? Once again, it's all about the people coming over. And the fact is that instead of this half a million being spent on TikTok um, to try and dissuade people coming over, yeah. what they should have done is opened a processing centre in France, yeah. like France offered us. Instead, yeah. this government under Priti Patel, well, when she was Home Secretary, she refused it. She said, well, they said, actually, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to take your help and open a processing centre. That would have dissuaded at least families from trying to do that journey mm. but the selling point for the gangs is this you cannot claim asylum without setting foot on the UK we are the only people who can get you into the UK yeah. once you're in you'll have these facilities you can do this the housing and you'll get looked after you'll get the meals your kids will get the free school that's the selling point and once again without catching these gangs you're never going to stop the people coming over
2: right that is the problem. But surely, as well, if you opened up a processing centre on, on foreign soil, if you like, would it not be like British Embassy and they could claim, well, I've landed into this, uh, this office and so that technically means I've actually applied to be an asylum seeker here?
7: No, because what we're suggesting is to do the same thing in Rwanda, yeah. uh, thousands of miles away. We're, we're suggesting to process these people's claims and then keep them there regardless yeah. of the result. Now, Italy's just signed a deal with Albania, which is its nearest country to set up processing centers there. That's wise. So why shouldn't we do it in our nearest country and do the same? Italy didn't say, right, we're going to open one up in China or open up one in near India or Afghanistan. They said, right, well, our problem is Albanians coming over yeah. and so we're going to do it in the nearest country and that's what our problem is, people coming over from France mm. and we should obviously do it in France. just makes common sense. It
2: does make sense, but unfortunately nothing we've ever done with France thus far has ever worked. We've given them hundreds of millions of pounds and they've done the square root bugger all, really. I mean, at the end of the day, surely the problem we've got here... As Harjab says, it's a nationwide, uh, sorry, it's a Europe-wide problem and it's a worldwide problem. You look at what's happening in America and you look at what New York are doing. New York are offering to give people money to spend uh, and to stay in a hotel for free, uh, having come all the way from from sub-Saharan Africa uh, through Mexico and sort of bust up to Manhattan. It seems incredible. But do you get a sense, though, that this government is just sort of pushing around pawns on a, on a board and just sort of waiting for an election? Because they don't look like they've got their hearts in anything, do they?
8: Well, definitely. I mean, especially when you look at how much emphasis Rishi Sunak and his government and prime ministers before him as well have put on illegal migration mm. and Rishi Sunak more recently, the Rwanda scheme particularly, which, yeah. as we all know, hasn't been the most effective thus far. To Not it, really. To put it politely... <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) 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 Um, So he's put so much emphasis on illegal migration, and I guess from a tactical point of view for the government, we're we're approaching an election at some point this year. If the Rwanda scheme is looking slightly less likely by the second, what else can they do? And now I think that's why we're seeing all of these new slight scrambles um, at different options that they could be exploring, just to try and show that they are really clamping down on illegal migration.
2: Right. Well, Rishi Sinnett made that bet with Piers Morgan, so I mean he's going to get people up in planes, presumably before the summer, isn't he?
9: Well, if he gets a plane load off, um, I mean... I'll I, give I, you
2: a £1,000 if he gets a plane load off.
9: <laughs>
8: <laughs> <It's>
2: <laughs> well, free. Uh, it's, Shake on it. You're <laughs> as likely to have pigs flying than uh,
9: flights to Rwanda. And even if they do, it's going to be a handful. So yeah. it's, a, it's a token nominal thing. Mm. I think that the Conservative Party actually stands uh, condemned for a legacy of mass uncontrolled immigration, both mm. legal and illegal. And when you've got figures, net immigration of 745,000 yeah. in one year, uh, without the accommodation or the social service or, or the NHS services to be able to accommodate them, let alone the housing. Yeah. Um, that's almost an act of criminality, well, it I is. think, from the point of view of most British people.
2: Mm, absolutely right. And, and we're out of time, <coughs> unfortunately, but I gave a statistic yesterday that the birth rate in this country now is so low. 600,000 were born around 2022. 1.2 million uh, immigrants came here legally last year. That's double the number of people being born here, so mm. that's something to think about. Harjap, thanks very much indeed. Trevor, Alicia as well, thank you very much. Uh, we've got much more to do. You're watching The Independent Republic Mike Graham. Uh, up next, we're taking a look at the shocking expenses of Sadiq Khan and the latest on the royal family, particularly what Prince and Princess Montecito have been up to. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for Taking the Mic. The Mayor of London is never shy in coming forward when it comes to boosting his own ego and broadcasting to the world. What a genius he is! Who can forget the fireworks display on New Year's Eve this year, which was presented as if Sadiq Khan had personally organized it, paid for it, and been the artistic director of the entire event. Who could forget when he called for London to rejoin the European Union separately from the rest of the United Kingdom despite the vote in the brexit referendum and of course. He did call for a ceasefire in Gaza, even though British foreign policy has got nothing to do with him or the London Assembly. Only this week, Sadiq, it was revealed, has completely failed to do what he said he would do, and that is to build as many as 27,000 houses every single year. That is the target set by the Greater London Assembly, where he works. Khan's constant line on his own performance is that London under Sadiq Khan is outbuilding the rest of the country. The truth, though, is that he's built precisely no council houses at all and only 874 affordable houses, meaning that he's only hit around 4% of the target. Today, we've got some more bad news for the mayor. It's emerged that he's been a bit extravagant with our money. Yes, thanks to the latest Freedom of Information Act, it turns out that Sadiq splashed out £331,290 on Black Futures and Black on the Square events in the last two years. He also spaffed up the wall a further 57,755 quid on diversity training for his staff. And then there's another £100,000 of taxpayers' cash going south to a charity that mentors children on changing their gender. Brilliant. Black on the Square was a free festival held last September in Trafalgar Square involving plenty of DJs and live bands. There was fine food, there were many drinks supplied and it was all about celebrating black culture and creativity. And if you missed it, don't worry, There's another one coming this year, and it won't be any cheaper, by the way. Do come along, because apparently it will, in their words, reflect London's values whilst remaining accessible to all. Using our money to shove multiculturalism down our own throats, I can't wait. Leave it out, Governor. Now, moving swiftly on, some great news for fans of Meghan Markle. That's just... Meghan Markle. She's found another way to enjoy listening to the sound of her own voice. It's a new podcast series, hurrah, with Lemonada Media, whoever they are. This deal comes a year after the Duke and Duchess parted ways with Spotify, which published the eminently forgettable Archetypes. I'm joined now live from Los Angeles by host of the To Die For daily podcast, Kinsey Schofield. Kinsey, very good afternoon to you in LA. I hope the rain has stopped now. I hear it's been pretty bad weather over there.
10: It is. I just wanted to remind you, Mike, that I am still on Spotify. Megan might not be, but I'm still on Spotify. Me too.
2: I mean, my (laughs) podcast can be found on Spotify and they've never called me an effing grifter or said that I was untalented. So there you go, and I'm sure you're in the same boat. (laughs) <laughs> high five, high five. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell me about Lemonada, uh, apart from the fact that it's been started by women, which shouldn't be surprising in this day and age? I mean, people say, you know, it's a female, all-women startup, as if, you know, you should be surprised that women can start up a company. I mean, I'm not.
10: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Well, it was started in 2019. They had a particular podcast that they were trying to get out, and they were shopping it around, and and there were no bites. So they just decided to start their own uh, podcasting company. Nice. Um, they do have Sarah Silverman on their roster, who is a hilarious comedian. They have uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus from oh, yeah. Seinfeld, Elaine. Yeah. Uh, she's got a very successful podcast on this network. But that's you know those are really the only names that stood out to me oh samantha b who used to have a late night talk show here in the states but no longer does another female comedian yeah um so megan is going to be a big fish in a small pond she's not she's no longer competing with the likes of joe rogan and um you know i do think that while she's going to probably have a lot more support in this space, uh, it still is a huge fall from grace. It's not Spotify. It's not Audible. It's not iHeartRadio. It's not Audacity. It's not one of these major companies that you would expect to partner with the Sussexes after their huge launch after Megxit with the likes of Netflix Mm. and Spotify. It just kind of looks like, oh, who? What?
2: It looks like, very oh, no, second. This... It looks very second division to me, I'm afraid. You know, and I mean, I, I, out of those names you just mentioned, I only really know Julia uh, Louis Dreyfus, who, who was in Veep, I think, as well as, as Seinfeld. Yes. But I mean, they are very much down the pecking order, aren't they, of, uh, of what you might call sort of star studded. If they turned up at the Super Bowl, for example, none of them would get their pictures in the paper because they're not big enough stars. And it just seems to me that the main problem that Megan and Harry had uh, with Spotify was that they're just not very good at working very hard because they only produced, I think, two podcasts in a year, didn't they?
10: Well, Megan gave them 12 episodes and Prince Harry gave them one with a Christmas special that primarily was the voice of Tyler Perry and Elton John and, right. and other um, other celebrities. But let's run down, if you don't mind, let's run down some of the Spotify failures. Yeah. Harry and Megan initially assured us that their Spotify deal was going to amplify regular people making a difference in the world. Megan interviewed Paris Hilton and Mariah Carey, okay? Yeah. Um, and who needs <laughs> 17 producers on a podcast? There were way too many cooks in the kitchen yeah. for Megan's original show. Uh, There was a lack of authenticity when you discovered that Megan prioritized interviewing celebrities personally, but allowing producers to interview some of the featured experts while dropping Megan's audio in later. The topics were irrelevant. Are we really complaining about stereotypes in Austin Powers movies? Let it go. Mm. Hollywood has matured beyond the type of comedy uh, that Austin Powers was. Stop trying to solve problems that are no longer an issue. Mm. Um, And Megan often didn't allow her guests to breathe or expand on their answers she'd hijack it and start you know talking about herself and and making that that all about herself i really do think that spotify was disappointed that they didn't get more out of harry you and i've discussed it before some of the ludicrous ideas prince harry brought to the table when they signed that initial spotify deal um and Bill Simmons making fun of some of those so public, publicly, uh, but, um, you know, I, again, and the Queen passing in the midst of Meghan Markle releasing her podcast too, I'm sure we know for a fact, uh, or according to, I should say, according to the Daily Mail, we know that Meghan has blamed the Queen's death on, on some of her podcasting failures and, and the, the critical reception she received. But it's going to be hard to be successful when you've got that long list of of things against you at at your last
2: place. Well, exactly right. And I wonder when we can look forward to the very first podcast and what it will be like, because presumably she'll be ensuring that she'd make sure she tells us they have on the website that she's one of the most influential women in the world. Um, And of course, um, she and Harry, the environmentalist, took yet another private jet up to Canada for the Invictus Games just, I think, yesterday, wasn't it?
10: Yes, yeah, so they're in Canada right now. They're going to be there for three days. I thought it was funny. The Telegraph. I saw that they posted an article that said something like, "Meghan and Harry have three days to behave themselves to prove that that yeah. they can, uh, that they won't get in trouble with the royal family in the future or something, something to that effect." But we do expect to see them Friday uh, at an appearance. For the first two days, they're engaging with some of the competitors that are, um, you know, in training right now. Yeah. I think that th- this was a, a planned trip and I'm not going to criticise them for going in the midst of what's going on with the King and the Princess of Wales because this is one of the few moments that it's not about them Mm. and it's about something bigger and that's Invictus Games.
2: Yeah, exactly right. But I mean, you know, all we can do, I suppose, is hope that they might just consider leaving us all alone for a couple of days or possibly a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of years and just stop bothering us.
10: They're expensive. They have 16 bathrooms. That's a lot of toilet paper, Mike. I, I, you know, I think that a lot of what they're doing is trying to keep up with their own finances. Um, I just don't know how much they're going to make out of of limonada, considering the fact that it's new to a lot of us. But I think that what they're what we're seeing is is two people that, you know, probably spend more than they make or are making and, and they're in a kind of a desperate situation.
2: Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. Kenzie, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Kenzie Schofield reporting into us there uh, from Hollywood. You're watching the dynamic Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up, has Donald Trump's NATO threat actually worked? Well, I wouldn't be surprised. Let's find out after the break.
0: Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ.
2: Good evening and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and of course we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up in this hour, NATO members ramp up defence spending after Trump warns he won't protect them from Russia. Starmer Sutra, the Tories mocked the Labour leader's policy flip-flopping in their latest attack ad. And car dealers resort to slashing the prices of electric vehicles as sales plummet. I knew it was coming. Now... Do you ever wake up and think you're living in some kind of parallel universe? You know this sort of thing. You're living in a country where poor British people are being kicked out of their rented homes to make way for asylum seekers and their families. The kind of country where veterans of the armed services are left to starve and perish on our streets in the cold while illegal migrants are provided with free food and a nice hotel room for years and years until they can find them a house. Sounds like some kind of dystopian nightmare, doesn't it? But tragically, it's actually true. The government claims it is aiming to stop the boats coming altogether. It claims the people traffickers won't win. Well, I've got some bad news for them. They've already won. I mean, what kind of deterrent is the promise of a warm hotel room, round-the-clock food and even some cash in hand to go out and hang around in the towns of this country, when your alternative is a drafty tent in a dangerous migrant camp somewhere near the northern French coast? Now, of course, the incentive is even better because if they can get here, they can stay in a house as well. Government contractors are already promising landlords up and down the country five years guaranteed income, including the payment of council tax as they prepare to gather up 16,000 homes in the next few months. The final number might be closer to 30,000. Apparently it's a much cheaper option, only £30 a day as opposed to £150 a day for the hotels. But there are 50,000 migrants being put up in those hotels and now they're going to be taking social housing places away from genuine British families who can't get accommodation of their own. The whole thing stinks, and it's yet another example of how useless this government has been over this issue for years and years. One source inside the Home Office said, some of the contractors are taking properties in pretty normal streets. You can buy yourself a £300,000 house and suddenly find your next-door neighbour is a house full of asylum seekers. MPs are starting to report problems as a result of it. Apparently, among the areas chosen are largely towns, where properties are cheaper, like Hull, like Bradford and like Teesside in the northeast, for starters. There are real fears that this manoeuvre will simply create ghettos and God only knows how many of these people are. God knows how many of them uh, have been criminals in the past. We just don't know. Only yesterday I revealed how our falling birth rate means that twice as many people are emigrating to this country legally as the number being born here. You do the maths. Surely that must be a recipe for disaster. Now, moving on, later in the show we'll be bringing you a first look at tomorrow's front pages, but before anyone else we've got an exclusive look at The Sun's front page and it is staying uh, on the subject of Steve Wright. And it says, Radio legend Steve Wright died of a broken heart. This is according to his friends uh, who say that after he was dumped by the BBC, he never really recovered. Helen Thomas called Steve second to none um, less than 18 months after taking away his hugely popular show in 2022. Steve, it says, was found dead in his London flat on Monday morning. Um, Terrible, terrible story, but we'll look at more of that, of course, uh, later on in the show with the panel. Uh, that's later on in this hour. Right now, though, uh, let's talk about Donald Trump, because he made a threat not to protect underspending NATO allies from Russia and sent a rocket up the member nations, as he predicted it would. For the first time, 18 out of NATO's 31 members have committed to spending 2% of their GDP on defence. And the Republican White House front runner says he would encourage the Kremlin to attack any Western neighbours. And nations that don't pay up. Unsurprisingly, US President Joe Biden isn't too happy. He thinks Trump's approach is dumb, dangerous and un-American. Uh, to discuss this, I'm joined by former British Army officer Colonel Richard Kemp, Richard, welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. A lot of people got a bit sort of hysterical about this speech by Donald Trump, but it seems to have had the desired effect. He did it before uh, when he warned NATO countries that they needed to pick up their tab and they needed to contribute an amount of money into an organisation which is very largely funded by America. Um, Presumably, if it's worked, it's a good idea.
11: Yeah, if it's worked, I I, I think... um... I don't blame Trump or, or any of the other U.S. presidents who have been pretty outspoken about NATO's failure to, or sorry, European uh, NATO members' failure to pull their own weight in defence spending in protecting their own uh, countries and, and their own continent, and, and relying so much on America to do so. It enrages many American taxpayers quite understandably, and it does take things like a bit of a bit of stick from Trump, uh, as we saw also. Uh, during his presidency to, to at least to begin to wake the NATO members up. And what we've seen, you know, Biden might call it stupid and un-American, but um, the reality is that I think Biden has been responsible to a very large extent for the destabilisation of Europe. For example, his withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan, the, the the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021, I'm sure played a significant role in encouraging Putin to invade mm. Uh, Ukraine, which has caused massive problems, of course, for the whole of Europe and other countries beyond. And I think what we do need is, I, I, and I do not believe that that invasion would have taken place if Trump had been in the White House, mainly because Trump is so volatile and unpredictable. Yeah. I don't think Putin would have wanted to risk facing uh, the unexpected from Trump. So it's all very well for, you know, P- Biden has, has miserably failed over Ukraine. He's miserably failed over. Uh, so many other foreign policy issues around the world, not least the Middle East. Uh, and I think, I think uh, tr- Trump is, whether you like him or not, whether he's good in other areas, I think he's potentially very, very effective for defence matters and for, uh, for foreign policy.
2: Well, I don't think there's any doubt that the world was a much safer place when Donald Trump was president than it is now. We spoke about this just the other night, um, how we are now in a very dangerous time, not least because of what's happening in Ukraine, but also the Middle East is kind of in all sorts of conflagrations all over the place, from Iran to Syria to Lebanon to uh, Israel and Gaza, of course, and over to Egypt. I mean, it's a hell of a mess, which Biden doesn't really seem very clued up on how to fix.
11: No, well, Biden. Biden has. Uh, I think Biden has. What the one? I think the one good foreign policy move he's made since his presidency began was uh, to to stand up very staunchly for Israel in 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 their war against Hamas in Gaza and also the aggression against Israel from other parts of the region. And I think I think that's been a, a plus for him. But again, I would say that um, it, I think it's quite likely that uh, had he not shown his gross weakness on the international stage over many years had he not spent so much time and effort appeasing iran unfreezing uh, frozen assets to, back to iran to enable them to fund some of their regional aggression had all that not happened had he not basically distanced himself from israel uh, after pre- prime minister netanyahu was re-elected um uh, uh, there, thereby indicating that perhaps America would not be such a staunch ally. Mm. I think he he essentially helped help provoke the terrorist attack uh, against Israel on the 7th of October.
7: Yeah.
2: Oh there's no question I don't think that um you know there was there were those voices in the Middle East who were not happy um with the Abraham accords they were not happy with with a process that was kind of helped and started away by Donald Trump um to try and bring closer together, relations between Israel and places like um, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, um, not so much Qatar, but, you know, those uh, Arab states that were not on the side of Iran, effectively.
11: Yeah, and, and um, Trump Trump's policies led directly to the Abraham Accords. Um, and, and indeed, Obama's policies before Trump took office contributed as well, because Obama had shown himself to be a, uh, a less than reliable ally for ma- major countries like Saudi Arabia, which um, Trump kind of brought back on on board, and and that led to the Abraham Accords. Saudi Arabia didn't join, but they certainly wouldn't have happened if Saudi hadn't given its blessing. And um, and then again, Biden comes in after Trump and uh, and essentially turns the whole thing around again. Not only did he do that, he also. Effectively put the brakes on the Abraham Accords. Not, because, not I don't believe because he thought it wasn't a good thing. I think he put the brakes on it, as he did so many other things, because it was a Trump policy, and he was determined to eradicate as many of Trump's policies as he could during his own presidency. And we've seen, you know, we've seen catastrophic results from that. We've seen Iran far more rampant. We've seen, um, we've we we've seen a, a real growth of Iranian. Um, proxy groups around the Middle East, from Gaza to uh, the West Bank to uh, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and indeed um, in the Red Sea with the Houthis. And, you know, we shouldn't forget that in in the period since this war began um, against Israel by Hamas, an Iranian proxy, uh, we've seen something like, I think it's now about getting on towards being about 170 or so individual attacks by Iranian proxies on US forces which have been met with almost inaction or very, very inadequate response. And, of course, that feeds it. It provokes... It does continue to provoke Iran.
2: Right. That's the thing. And, I mean, we were talking about David Cameron the other night, um, Richard, and how he should keep his nose out of giving advice to Benjamin Netanyahu. He seems to have upset the Americans tonight, certainly some Republicans, specifically Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. He's basically been asking for uh, US Congress to make sure they pass this additional aid package of, uh, of money and aid to Ukraine. Uh, some Republicans are against it. Um, and he's basically upset them because he's done something which really does seem rather ridiculously juvenile. He's basically said that if they obstruct these military aid packages, it will be the equivalent of the appeasement of Hitler prior to the invasion of Poland in the Second World War. I mean, this guy's meant to be our foreign secretary, for heaven's sake.
11: Well, let's not forget it was European countries, including the UK, that uh, played a leading role in appeasing Hitler before the Second World War. Yeah. Really, the finger shouldn't be pointed at America. I don't believe in in, in relation to that. Uh, we can point it much more directly at ourselves, and also to an extent at France uh, and other countries as well. And uh, I, I think uh, Cameron's comments are, are, are highly undiplomatic. It's not it is not the kind of mood that needs to be set between britain and the us mm. set against particularly set against trump in a way uh, when trump potentially could be the president of the united states again early next year and with the last thing we need is to damage any relationship between the uk and trump trump is very pro-uk unlike biden who i think is much more anti-uk yeah. uh, having said that i think that's you know that's a diplomatic undiplomatic approach but having said that i think cameron is right in in uh, wanting to rally countries around giving support to Ukraine, increased support to Ukraine. The US has been by far the leading supporter of Ukraine in this war so far, but even so, they have not done anything like enough. And collectively, Ukraine's Western backers have allowed Ukraine to, uh, to, to basically to, to not be defeated uh, in the war so far, but they have not done enough to allow Ukraine to be victorious in the war against Russia. And Things are looking very bleak, I think, now for Ukraine with with Russia again on having the initiative on the offensive. Ukraine with very, very limited capability now to, to actually even to defend against that, never mind to itself get back onto the offensive and try and retake the ground at lost.
2: Right. So do you think without more aid and without more money that the Russians will sort of be victorious in effect?
11: I do, and I think that... Um, you know, without, without Western aid, particularly American aid, and again, that's another issue that I think Trump and, and the US Republicans might well have a, a problem with, which is, you know, is Europe, has Europe been pulling its weight over support Ukraine? Mm. A great deal's been done. But if you compare the, the extent of support from European countries, particularly military support, um, to the US, I don't think they have been pulling their weight. Um, so I think it, you know, I think it's 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 a reasonable problem another reasonable problem for the US to complain about. Yes. But but I think the reality is going to be that unless a very significant boost is given to Ukraine defenses in terms of munitions, including aircraft, including large numbers of tanks, artillery and artillery shells, many of which are in great shortage now in the West, because the West hasn't really, you know, US, the UK, other European countries haven't really re-geared their defence um, industries to, to meet this threat. I think uh, if, if, if that doesn't occur, and, it, and the chance of it occurring I think quite limited, I think what we could end up seeing before the end of this year is um, a, a ceasefire, a, 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 or at least a, a freezing of hostilities between Russia and, and Ukraine, because Ukraine simply can't hold out and can't do anything offensive. Um, which is, and of course, any ceasefire is going to be increasingly on Russian terms, mm. and that means a defeat for Ukraine. Effectively, even if Russia doesn't take much more of Ukraine's territory, than it's got now. It's got a lot of it, and it's a defeat for NATO as well. Uh, a defeat that NATO has allowed to happen. Um, and, 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 but I do believe that behind the scenes, I think President Biden is hoping for that outcome. I think that's what he's. In, in many ways, been counting on for some time, so that he can enter the next U.S. election, saying, "We did our best for Ukraine. They weren't able to withstand Russia. We've brokered a peace deal with, between Ukraine and Russia, and therefore, I, I want to be a re-elected president, and I've brought peace to Europe. I think that's certainly somewhere on his agenda. And it's, it is. A, it's a. It's a. It's a defeat. It will be a defeat for the West against Russia. Almost whatever the." Um, the, the extent of and the, and the real terms of any agreement are. And that's assuming that uh, Putin will want to go along with it. And I think there's every indication he probably will because he, I don't think he wants to be on his back foot or, shall we say, not having at least some settlement made uh, before January next year when he's going to find, he could find Trump in the White House again. And that's going to be very problematic for him. So I think he, he would like probably to settle things on his terms before
2: that. Yeah, I guess if he ends up with more than he had at the start, then he'll certainly go for it, but then we'll have spent an awful lot of money uh, to no real avail. Colonel Richard Kemp, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. As for um, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, she says... Thank you, David Cameron can kiss my ass. That's American diplomatic language, or perhaps not. Uh, you're watching The Outspoken Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Next, more bizarre ideas from Labour, and this time they want to change the gender of the dead. And our panel's back as well to discuss the UK's most depressing town. Settle in, we'll be back after this. Coming at you live, this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, we've seen enough this year of the million gender madness, but the latest outburst has come from none other than the Labour Party, MP Charlotte Nichols. In a bizarre request, she's asked if the Gender Recognition Act could be edited to allow transgender people who are deceased to be legally remembered by the gender they live by. This rather vulgar attempt at revving up the culture wars after the stabbing of Brianna Guy is typical of the modern Labour Party, who will apparently sink as low as possible to advance their crazy obsession with people's genitalia. We've already seen the dangers of such laws in Scotland, where they are proposing to lock parents up for trying to stop their own children wearing sexualised clothing. Changing the gender of the dead is the next ludicrous and dangerous step to the Labour Party's Orwellian vision, where there was never such a thing as a man and a woman, instead trying to paint history in an endlessly long and tiresome rainbow flag. Now, this is, of course, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV. We look now to the delicate sensual jungles of India, where the Conservatives have said that Keir Starmer has been getting his policy ideas from The dropping of the green pledges, they say he can balance multiple policy positions in one. As their poster says, pulling off the Stama Sutra, as we've seen a little bit earlier on uh, in the show. Let's get the reaction of the panel. We spoke about this a little bit earlier. I mean, it's sort of of funny on Valentine's Day, but, I mean, I haven't particularly celebrated Valentine's Day and it's nearly, you know, 10 o'clock at night, so I don't think I'm going to be getting anything uh, particularly interesting going on. But, I mean... Stama Sutra. he is, he is finding himself um, in a place where he can't actually rely on any policy at all that he's not going to change his mind on.
6: Um, well, he, it probably makes him sound more interesting than he is. I mean. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, he's infamously dull in his sort of private life. I think a little bit of sort of cavorting might adhere to, you know, make voters feel a bit differently about him. But obviously the thing about his multiple positions is that it's deliberate. Yeah. I mean, the Labour Party is deliberately being vague on any manifesto pledges, and that vagueness goes beyond the usual kind of wait-till-see into the election, Um, because they're in this unenviable position of trying to court votes in various different sections of sort of political um, allegiance. They keep trying to pretend that they're with the Red Wall, but they're not really. They don't want to admit that they're mainly middle class, but yet those are the people they're going to have to rely on. And so it's this sort of like constant shifting around um, trying to, you know, and also, you know, I think a nervousness, the the dropping of the um, 23 billion or whatever Mm. it was, pledge, 28 28 billion pledge, um, was all about saying we're not going to let anyone get us, we're Mm. not going to let anyone catch us out. Um, And I think actually that was really cowardly because instead of saying, I mean, I disagree with the whole net zero thing and all the rest of it, but if you, have, if you believe in something, you're meant to have an ideology as a party, mm. you're meant to be able to make that yes. happen. Yes, and they kept saying the they weren't going to give up it.
2: on it, didn't they? I mean, Ed Miliband was famously, unfortunately, um, tweeting only last year that, you know, we will not give up on this. And then when he actually did finally give up on it, he didn't really have much to say about it.
5: There's another great metaphor, isn't there, around Boris Johnson that Dominic Cummings came up with, Mm. and that's the trolley. Yeah. And he would sort of lurch side to side based on every day his sort of ideas would change, or whoever was speaking to him last in the room, suddenly that was his opinion. I don't think Starmer's quite that bad, but he definitely has an eye to what the media is saying, to what various different factions in his party are saying. I mean, when he first got elected as Labour leader, famously he made all these pledges to the left of the party, pretending he's some sort of new kind of... Not when quite. Nationalised everything, yeah. wasn't he? Well, that quite, and I then he, he sort of reversed on all of that stuff, right. and now he's become a kind of sort of Blairite centrist no. figure again, which is quite depressing, isn't it? The sort of lack of ideological ideological conviction in our politics, I think, is a real shame. I don't, I don't think it's very democratic where you've got both parties who don't really believe in anything, yeah. and are quite happy to scrap their main so so-called policies in a yes. heartbeat. Yeah.
4: I think that's reflected though, in, in the voters, we feel this this. Unease. There's this undercurrent of you know where, where do I place my faith because I feel it's a bit you know look at this farcical government you know sparring with each other on social media and yeah. I mean yeah it's funny for about five seconds but when you actually think about these are the people running our country I know. you know it, I just think it's ridiculous it is. I've had enough and quite frankly. You know, I think the it,
2: country's had enough, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think that's it. And I mean, if you were going to continue a supermarket analogy, I suppose with uh, with Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer's the guy who's very careful about how he pushes the trolley, and he goes down one aisle after another, but he doesn't actually buy anything, and he gets to the end of the the, the sort of the, the day, and he's just got an empty trolley, mm-hmm. and he's got nothing in there because he doesn't know what he wants.
6: But that's yeah. the interesting thing is that he's. I think Starmer has always banked on the idea of um, that. You know, Boris Johnson was chaotic, and uh, promise and, anything to anyone. Not. Yeah. And he's sensible yeah. and calm. And it's, I think that's a real misunderstanding of what people want. It's not that people, you know, the, the chaos of Boris Johnson was known before the 2019 right. election. What won that election for them was that they had a clear uh position in relation to Brexit, yeah. a clear position in relation to that whole discussion about democracy. And that's what sold all those red wallers over yes. to the conservatives. Um, but this, uh, it's kind of a bit insulting, this whole idea of what we need is just mm. sensible, even-handed, calm, dull government. Yeah. Because actually, that's, it's not that people want big, exciting madness, it's that they want big ideas, yes. something with substance. Whereas I think, the you know, I mean, this is a problem across the whole of Europe at the moment, mm. which is you see populist... Populism's not a problem, but you see populist backlashes against this kind of approach of technocratic, mm-hmm. managerial... Yes calmly, smoothly, leave-it-up-to-us sort of approach to politics, which is what Keir Starmer is. That's why he gets on so well with Macron and people
2: like that. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And, I mean, uh, if you look at the opposition, I suppose, to the Keir Starmer um, tweets, the Labour Party did their own version of it with their Spotify, rather hopeless list of songs, uh, including Stairway to Recession. Um, I don't think this one wins, do you? I mean, I think out of all of them, out of the two of them, probably Starmer's sutra is probably better isn't it? I think the Tories are really trying to become mega-trolls on Twitter. I don't yeah. know if
5: you've noticed this recently, <laughs> and I think it's kind of a sign of desperation, to be honest. They're trying to make headlines. They've, you know, We're talking about yeah, it, yeah. so it's kind of yeah. one, hasn't it? Right. Uh, I think they're doing quite a good job in that sense, but I mean, this is just complete desperation from the Conservatives yeah. coming out with all these adverts to try and take the piss out of Kisan. Right.
4: It feels desperate from them both, I'm not going yeah, to lie. I, I think, so. think it feels desperate it's from both angles. Well. And I think what you were saying, Ella, about the populism stance, we're taking our cues from America. You've got, you know, the Biden figure, the more sensible, you know, left-wing Starmer, and then you've got the crazy, you know, right-wing faction. And I, I just think... Well, that doesn't we,
2: work with Sunak, like Helen yeah. was saying, because he's not crazy, is he?
4: We, we are starting... I've started to see this with a lot of social media influencers. Mm. You know, they're, they're really, like, Hammergate and everything like that. They're yeah, really yeah. starting to capitalise on his, his, you know, what he's done wrong and yeah. makes, it, what Far funnier songs than what Labour... Well, the other movie. problem
2: with these songs, right, is it's not mm. particularly up to it's up to speed, is it? I mean, Stairway to Heaven's not exactly a new song. <laughs> and Don't Go Breaking My Heart, Elton John and Kiki Dee. I mean, I remember that, but you guys won't. I mean, that was in the 70s, for heaven's sake. I mean, it's a very long time ago. Who are
5: they appealing to? It's funny that it seems that both parties are now obsessed with TikTok and sort of yeah. this new kind of era, mm. so much so that they're now paying influencers... To
2: try and dissuade. It's like the they've migrants. suddenly discovered influences on TikTok, yeah, and they suddenly think they can do something. I mean, we can since we've got it here. We might as well mention that's on the front page of uh, um, the Metro. UK pays TikTok stars to stop boats. Well, they won't, will they?
4: A hundred thousand pounds from the government kitty for these TikTokers. Um, to basically dissuade people on the British lifestyle, which is what uh, you know, expensive biscuits and bad weather. Yeah, and I think it's people. worse
2: than that. I think it's more like half a 1000000 they They've actually yeah. they've actually sort of earmarked to pay five, five these k people.
4: each. I've read that yeah. these influencers will be getting to t- to counter um, supposed. Scammers mm. who are glorifying the British lifestyle and saying it's a great place to live, you'll get free money, come over here. But
2: it is a great place to live and you will get free money and you will get a free house. So they're coming. <laughs> I'm sorry. But the, they're not gonna be talked out of it, are they? The oh.
6: thing about the obsession with TikTok, I mean it used to be Twitter and now Twitter's or X, whatever it's called.
2: Twitter's it? gone now, downhill, downhill, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah.
6: But there's that the obsession with TikTok is sort of asymptomatic symptomatic of the, this feeling that all you really need to do is get the packaging right for yeah. politics. All you really need to do is get it into a snappy clip, bit of, you know, funny graphics, and then people will be on your side. Right, mm-hmm. and, and it'll go
2: viral. Yeah,
6: yeah. and obviously even, even the most kind of basic, superficial, nineteen-year you know, stereotype of a 19-year-old, yeah. which is what they all go for, of a TikToker doesn't get their political analysis from those kind of videos. They do have a brain. They do make decisions. Right. You know, even if it's just, like, the background of their parents' radio coming through, you know, there's a sort of that, well, there's a real dumbing down of politics if it's all about this kind of just how you market to people.
2: Well, that's the I, thing. And I, also I, everybody in politics assumes that, that people know who they are. You know, most people in this country, if you walk down the street and show them a picture of Keir Starmer, they wouldn't know who he was. Well, well, I think well.
4: that's who these TikTok videos appeal to, the people who don't necessarily know who they are but mm. are feeling the strain yeah. of the policies that have been put in place by these
2: people you know the money the financial strain yeah but do they blame politicians for that I mean I think once again when when you know if interest rates stay mass, low yes yeah but if interest rates stay low and you get back to the old it's the economy stupid mm. and people have a bit more money and they claim that they're going to get some tax back and maybe their mortgages going down a bit they might go well do you know what actually it's not as bad as, it, as I thought it was going to be and they'll just carry on voting for the Tories I don't think that's going to happen, Mike. I think we've
5: had fourteen years of no. I don't think so. new no, I stories of showing of Tory failures. Even though yeah. you know, I work for the Telegraph. We're pretty much posting stuff every single day about. I mean, definitely mm. some of the reporting that I'm doing yeah. recently on the armed forces, for example. Yeah, the like, Tories allowing wokeism into the armed right. forces. Even their own voters, I think, are saying this is complete madness. Right. Why? Why have they allowed this stuff? Mm. A few sort of
2: funny, silly things on Twitter or X or whatever, I don't think it's
5: going to do much to turn that
2: around. No, it's not. No. But, I mean, all I can think of telling you when I think of what, Sir Keir, what Keir Starmer has said is that, you know, he wants to bring us back our future. Now, most people walking down the high street are not going, well, I didn't know I'd lost the future, actually. I mean, a future is not for them to give to us or take away. Nobody's taking the future away. Starmer says he's going to bring it back. What does it mean?
6: Well, I mean, it's who knows what's going to happen in the election? I think probably most likely is that it'll be extremely low turnout. Um, and there's, you know, the, any support for... I think the Labour Party has to be honest with itself that any support that it will get will not be necessarily about the excitement around its policies because they're, they're not releasing <laughs> any detail about their policies, but will be a dissatisfaction with the Conservatives. Yeah. And, you know, I, I sort of... Asked me a month ago and I thought, well, this is a sure. It was just a foregone conclusion yeah. that Labour was going to win. But, you know, politics is weird and people are fickle. And whether it's this anti-Semitism scandals, if that's going to cut through, or whether it's the sort of, you know, the hemorrhaging in the middle class vote on the rowing back on some of the green pledges. Yeah. I mean, we're, we live in weird shifting times. We do. But I think the one thing that is sure is that it's a terrible choice that we face. I mean, the Rochdale, funnily enough, the Rochdale by-election is a bit of a kind of microcosm yeah. for what this whole general election Campaign will be, which is not quite the, sort of as nutty as George Galloway. But it's one thing, isn't it? But it's it's just voters turning up to the back box and saying, what? I have to choose between these. Yeah. These people are just sort of like there and then right. it's there. I think that's how a lot of people are feeling at the moment. Yeah, and that's, so. that's not good. You know?
2: Well, let's move away from politics because um, I want to talk about Cornwall. I don't know if you've been to Falmouth any time recently, <laughs> but apparently um, it is the most bland, boring, soulless, uncultured town in Britain.
5: I think well, that's quite un- un- unfair, don't you think, to our Cornish friends?
2: Um, well, I mean, Cornwall's an interesting place, isn't it? It's beautiful. You know, it it's takes ages beautiful. to get there, um, and when you get there, you can't really get around anywhere, and everywhere you go is really, really busy, and it everyone summer. seems to have a second home.
4: It's really bit It's the second home. Um, I think the locals of Falmouth are blaming um, the second home, as they're saying, you know, there are people coming here, they've ruined our town, get them out. Um, it's, it's beautiful and it's unfair. And they say it's social media that has propelled this, and right. how on earth... Are we more depressing than Peterborough? I mean,
2: I, I've never actually been to Peterborough. I
4: have many times. Have you? And What's I would, it like? I, I would, I would definitely like to have my fish and chips in Cornwall. In Cornwall. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, would you, is this a that's, London that's thing a nice as well? Because
2: there I, are people that live in London who don't really go to any other parts of the country at all. I mean, they might go on holiday abroad, but they've never been to Cornwall, never been to Scotland, never been to you know North Wales or Snowdonia or anything like no, that. No, I never had. No?
6: No. It was, Do you live I, in I, London now? I, I, I grew up in London and it was Ireland for six weeks. Yeah. Year and that was it. Right. I was, didn't even know. what You wouldn't ever outside consider. Outside the M25, no idea.
2: Right. No. Have no interest in it. You wouldn't consider moving to Cornwall. It's very <laughs> far away from everything. <laughs> it's very beautiful.
5: It's I feel pretty. like it is a summer. It's very much a yeah. summer place, mm. and they do rely on tourism in that in that time. And it's interesting. You say like people no longer going to these sort of seaside towns. They are becoming derelict. they yeah. were up in Portsmouth, actually. Did you? Yeah. And you know a lot of those towns on the south coast are very poor, and historically they relied on tourism for mm. people inside Britain. But with cheap air travel and so on, yeah. people just go to Spain and other places, oh. it's much sunnier and nicer yeah. in some ways. Although
4: the staycation boom has kind of countered that in a a way but it's just so nice when you enter Cornwall and the mist and
6: the hills you feel like you're in Jurassic Park I mean I'm torn on the I'm sure most people are torn on the two on the second home thing I mean you know on one hand people should be able to do what they want and the tourism pull is strong right but it is extreme how how, how do you say to a a young person who's born in these towns who's not got any job for seven months of the year whenever it's not sunny Mm and has no hope of buying a place themselves, And it means that the towns get sucked out of any life because there's no community. Because there's no
2: community. And it says the average house in Cornwall costs almost 10 times the average wage. Uh, average homes cost 316,000. Um, and the average salary is 32,000. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it is a bit of a recipe for disaster. But, I mean, I always think you should make your own fun. I mean, you know, you can't go somewhere and say, Oh, it's really boring here. Yeah, Well, I do agree. something interesting then. Yeah. You know, you're in a place by the sea, get a boat, you know, go out, fish for something. You know, buy, catch your own fish. <laughs> open a restaurant. You know, do anything you like. But I mean, I'm sick of people in this country going, "Oh, it's really boring here." Yeah,
4: I'm totally. Well, do in something about it. With you with that one? You, you know, I mean, I'm sure I could naked. even have
2: fun in Peterborough if I. Had to. <laughs> I don't I do.
4: know about that. There is a nightclub.
2: There's a nightclub.
4: I can't remember what it's called. Oh, Way too many drinks, and I was very young. <laughs> yeah. But it it was a really nice nightclub. Yes. It maybe have been a mirage for all I know, but yeah.
2: Yes. Um, six more months of train strikes is on the front page of The Sun. Um, that's nice, isn't it? I think they're just going to keep striking until Labour get in and then Labour are going to give them a load of money and then they'll be back to normal. Well,
5: I was reading that they're quite upset about having £65,000 to work a four-day week of 35 hours. Now. Yeah. I, I would take that in a
2: minute. Do you know Absolutely. What I mean? Journalism. Oh, yeah, I think that's a pretty good way. Yeah, I mean, I can never really speak about the number of hours and days that people work because I, I don't have to do that so much anymore. But I mean, there was a time when I used to work 12 hour days, you know, five, six days a week, and it was pretty horrendous. But train drivers have not got a bad deal. I feel like it's but quite. But that's
6: because they have. They the have unions a good union. Who fight for them? Yeah, true. So... but in
2: a way, it's a bit like the print unions used to be with newspapers. You know, basically, they are not. The unions don't have to be particularly good because every time they threatened strikes for a while, they would just give them more money, mm. and that's what happened with the print unions. They had so much power over the the owners of newspapers because they would just not want to lose productions and just give them the money. You know, but as a member of the public, I mean,
5: we are seeing strikes all the time. Yeah, it, like it is
4: frustrating.
5: Every other week, there's some sort of. Strike. Well,
2: everyone I talk to who uses trains just says it's so unreliable that, that you'd have no you idea down. whether there's going to be even even on a day when there isn't a strike you don't know if the train's actually going to turn up. Yeah, I've got to the station
4: several times and it's just been cancelled. Yeah. You know, I've paid £80 for a ticket to yeah. London. Right. And it just feels like, why? you know, I can't get this back. I've tried to get mm. refunds. I'll either get a partial refund. They make it quite difficult, Or it don't they? will be so convoluted that you yeah. end up feeling that it, you can't be bothered with right. the process. And the
2: ticketing's all up to cock. You don't know which ticket to buy. Yeah. You know, you can buy part of the way there. It's yeah. cheaper. You be- know, who's got the you time? Can't,
6: you can't blame that on the mix, Mix. Make- Blinch, McWhelen, who you know.
2: I no, 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 I think the ra- working, No, the, the railway system. companies are to blame as much as they are.
6: And I think that, I mean, you know, the Labour point I think will be interesting to see because I think that Labour has blown incredibly cold in relation to the strikes. Yeah, have uh, been, you know, not. I mean, using the excuse of we have, if we want to be in government, we can't support strikes, but have been icy towards um, around any discussions about increasing pay. Um, or any of the sort of di- discussions about negotiations. So I don't think it's a... I don't think once Labour get in, they're suddenly going to hand... I mean, it won't, no, because no, they'll just expect so.
2: Labour to pay up and Labour won't have the money, because that's the other problem Starmer's has made for himself. He actually said, because of the, the 28000000000 billion U-turn, uh, he said, we're never going to do things which, which we can't afford to do. Mm-hmm. So almost every time they come up with a plan, the Tories just have to say, well, you can't afford it, and then they won't do it. Mm-hmm. Well, there is no money left, is no. there? No. I
5: mean, taxes are record high. I can't see that going up for much more... And the Tories have spent a lot of, a load of money on COVID and another uh, sort of the yeah. NHS, and they've invested huge amounts of money in, in lots of public yes. welfare. So. We
2: enjoyed Rishi Sunak's little drawings last week. Uh, I think it was this time last week actually, where he drew, you know, his little whiteboard plan as to how you know why we haven't got any money. Because we've given it all away. It feels like we've <laughs> have had a Labour
5: government for the last fourteen years anyway. I, I think that's don't see right. The difference. No,
2: I mean I don't think you will see any difference if Starmer comes in. I mean, anything they haven't talked about much is um, is immigration. But we got back to politics. Since it's Valentine's Day, we should talk about this broken hearts and bank balances. Nearly ninety million pounds lost to romance fraud last year. Mm. That's an awful lot of money. Like is what's this, romance is fraud? This, is this people like, it's, sort uh, of making... Call,
6: the, the kids call them catfishers. Yeah. It's, uh, it's where you... It's terrible, actually. It's where, you know, you get... Uh, pretend to have a relationship with someone online and ask them to pay for your plane tickets or whatever and make up excuses to send money, and it's a way of putting people who are looking for love in desperate times under terrible pressure. It's, right. I think it's one of the worst things you can do. I mean, I know do. you it's shouldn't
2: awful. make fun of people who... It targets,
6: who... like, the elderly and...
2: Mm, you know, but surely, for, you. not for romance, you don't target the elderly for that, do you? No, I've seen loads of examples really? of el- elderly women
4: who are, say, widowed and they, they meet a young man online oh, yeah. and, you know, all of a sudden it's, oh... Ma'am, can you pay for this? Yeah. Or can I need surgery on my leg? Can you pay? Right. Can you know? And they, it they here that most up. people
2: get done for over ten thousand pounds each. <laughs> I mean, I'm, 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 maybe I'm being a bit sort of harsh on people, but. I've,
6: or maybe you're give, just tight. Don't give people. I, I <laughs> not give no, listen. Any money.
2: If you knew how much money I'd given away to my family, you would know that <laughs> I'm definitely not tight. But I wouldn't give money to somebody that I just met online who said I've got to have a life-saving operation. But is this? A, you this know, this is not online. I deal, wouldn't either. It?
4: No, hundred. I don't get why people do it. But in a way, that, you know, you've got to put yourself in the shoes of someone who is vulnerable. They're going to look at it. Well, I haven't spoken to someone in a long time, and they're attractive, mm. and they're paying attention to me. You know, they get love bonds
2: But did this happen before dating apps? Like, I mean, I. Oh, yeah. It did. yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's always been con men around. And I think mostly, I mean, very occasionally, if, in newspapers, you'd write about a woman uh, who conned a bloke. But most of the time, it's men who uh, who con women, mm-hmm. um, uh, for some strangely reason, enough. Uh, strangely enough. Um, and yeah, I think it's always, it's always happened. But I mean, it's never happened to me, luckily. It ever happened to you? <laughs> ever given somebody money and they disappeared with it?
5: I feel like He's I, bought, looking I, very, um, I bought a few drinks he <laughs> uh, didn't
2: return. Have you been, have you been <laughs> catfished? Have you? I,
4: I've been catfished by someone, but not, not for money. Um, oh, really? They, they arrived to a substantially less height and hair than, what, oh, really? than was advertised. <laughs> um, See, I've, never
2: <laughs>
9: under, I've never understood that
2: either. I mean, why would you do that? I mean, knowing that you're likely to meet the person... You know, and you give them some tissue of lies about what job you've got, what car you drive, and how yeah. rich you are, and then you turn up. It's just really awkward. they immediately just go, get lost. It's just they?
4: really awkward, but the height thing wasn't a huge issue as such, but combined with the hair, it just created... How little hair did he have? I mean, in the pictures, it was this, you know...
2: Lu- lustrous curls, and that's not <laughs> like, your fault, right? I mean, that's not, one of those things that can happen. But you just wonder what's going through people's minds. Yeah,
4: it? I know, and I just that's like me posting how did a picture you, how of How did myself. you sort of
2: let him down? Um, Gently, or did you not? Did you I just,
4: just I just um, thanked him for the date um, afterwards and just said, you know, thank you very much, <laughs> but I don't I don't feel like we're going to move forward. You didn't this.
2: do one of those, I'm just going to the toilet and never go no, back I to the table. No, I think it's a bit
4: cruel, and also he drove, so I'd be stranded at a country also, pub, yeah.
2: which wouldn't be great. That's very brave of you, though, to let a guy take you to a country pub <laughs> who you know you're not going to hang around with, and then, you know work out that how, the, how the hell are you going to get home <laughs> i'm hope, not going to get into this but
4: it was my second tinder date so i wasn't yeah. really sure of how this that seems
2: to be a thing of the past this like yeah you know, that was back when it
4: wasn't anymore. as terrible i yeah. think i'm not sure
2: mm. yeah it's all very strange um <laughs> couple of other stories to to get talking of broken hearts actually um I think we've got time to just touch on this um we mentioned it earlier Steve Wright died of a broken heart according to his friends and it's coming from a guy called Gary Farrow who I know a little bit actually um and he was a music um, executive for many years at Sony um and he basically says that the way the BBC treated him was part of the reason why he became so sad later Mm. in life because he had one of the biggest shows I think that Radio 2 put on.
6: 24 years. Steve
2: Wright in the yeah. afternoon and it was sort of everybody kind of, if you know, every age group knew it mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. if your parents listened to it, you heard yeah. it or, you know, if you were old enough, you heard it. You know what I mean? It's just, it's part of that whole BBC revamp that was so unsuccessful that they've now lost millions and millions and millions of listeners, particularly on Radio 2. But you
6: It's know? been made worse. Um, inside the Sun, they've got, a report, and in some of the other papers, reports of the fact that Helen Thomas, who was the head of, and in Radio Two, and made all the cuts. Yeah. <clears throat> and at about you know eighteen hours or something after um, the news of Wright's death was broken, and released a statement saying he was second to none, that he was wonderful, yeah. and you know the kind of gall to really? do something like that. Yeah. yeah. And, <clears throat> and lots of the, it's reported that there's lots of BBC staff who are righteously saying, "Hang on a minute, yeah. you should have just kept your trap shut yes. about this." So there's a there's people don't like a... hypocrisy, do they? Yeah.
5: It right. seems the BBC are sort of trying to refresh their face for a new audience. Right. But they're doing that by getting rid of their old, popular right. presenters
2: for these kind of new, I think, more diverse group But of what people. they call yeah. new and more diverse and younger, some of them are not that young. They're sort of in their 40s, you know. They're not, they're not bringing in loads or of kids. Like, or as talented kids.
5: or as interesting. No. Clearly not bringing in the audiences that the BBC expected them to. I no. think they
2: just
4: made the wrong move with this, calling him not current enough. Some... Sometimes somebody's such a household name; it yeah. doesn't matter if they're necessarily current. No, but, you know they've they've just got that persona, they've got the charisma, and you, they're you know they're sort of a bit of a national treasure. Well, and people I think in, that's in yeah, Wright I mean people wants.
2: in in radio particularly are very loyal to the to the shows that they like to listen to. You know. When they got rid of Ken Bruce, for example, which was yeah. another huge mistake, he took loads and loads of new listeners over to another radio station, commercial radio station, where and he also took his game that he had copyrighted. And, you know, they've lost all of those people now, and they're Chris never going
4: Moyles. back. Mm-hmm. Chris Moyles as well.
2: Chris Moyles, Chris Evans, yeah. Vanessa Feltz, I mean, you know, Graham Norton, some of them are here at Virgin. Um, and they didn't need to go from the BBC, but they were all just, you know, seen as... You know the old guard.
6: Well, that's it. it's interesting that there's I mean, it's the cult of youth issue, isn't it? Yeah. Like there's this mm-hmm. desire to snap up all young listeners, who, by the way, don't exist because they don't no. listen to radio. No. No. I mean, even Radio One, Radio One Extra is having a difficult time mm. trying to. But you
2: know they're launching some new young stations. Young they're actually the BBC are actually launching some new DAB stations, different versions of like Radio Three, different versions of of, of a couple of other you know. And you're kind of going, sorry, you're already losing listeners. What are I you think doing, they have launching new stations? To do this for so long though,
4: the BBC, it's kind of their mm. mo. Let's try and diversify. Let's try and be young and cool. And in doing so, they have been a bit lame, really. Yeah. To well, be honest. lame down. is right. They're yeah.
5: dumbing down a lot of their
2: programmes as yeah. well,
5: like. Um, the Today Programme. I think that the quality of the that. The Today Programme awful now. Yeah. I mean, right. I barely.
2: I mean, I used to when I was in the newspapers. I used to have to listen to the Today Programme every morning because that was where all the big interviews were, all the big stories were. Now you don't need to. Well, the same things
5: happened to Newsnight. The yeah. same thing happened to Andrew Neil's show. Yeah. I think yeah. it was this week, was it? Um, yeah. You know, the late night show. Yeah. Where I think it was really fantastic, After high the quality time. journalism. It was yeah. good. And it and was the funny the, as well. The
4: investigative work BBC Three did was absolutely, absolutely phenomenal, but and look- I don't think it can. Compare
5: now.
2: Now they treat their audiences right. like complete idiots. Yeah. we got to run. I'm already in trouble, I'm afraid. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Up next, I'm delighted to announce the end of the electric car revolution and a sneak peek at tomorrow's headlines as well. Stay exactly where you are. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for this.
1: The World of
2: Woke. Have you heard the one about the electric car dealer? Uh, he's having to slash the price of the Virtue as vehicle of choice to try and stimulate sales, which is slumping all over the place. You know how I don't like to say, I told you so, But I did tell you so. Potential customers are turning their backs on electric vehicles because of a lack of proper infrastructure on charging, the limitation and the range of the cars themselves, and the fact that second-hand and used EVs are practically worthless. The latest round of discounts on the cars follows news that some financial service companies are refusing to insure them as well due to the unpredictability of the battery life and the unknown future price of of second-hand models. On the plus side, of course, it's never been a better time to buy one. That's if you don't mind the inconvenience of finding a charger near enough to your house. But dealers are desperate to offload the current stock so you can save big money. The average discount on an EV has increased by 204% since last January and in some cases you can get a quarter off the price for a new one. On average, you could save almost five grand. The biggest saving found by What Car Magazine turns out to be a Vauxhall mocker electric crossover in horrid green it has a retail price of 36,610 but you can get now uh, you can pick one up now for just 28,231 a discount of almost a quarter and if you fancy a bit more continental you could go for a Peugeot E208. Uh, you can pick one of those up now for £28,000, uh, which is 6000 off the retail price of 34000 The truth behind the figures, of course, is far more revealing about consumer confidence in the whole electric car business. The Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders shows that sales to private individuals have fallen by 25% year on year, and it's only group sales to companies and fleet purchasing that has propped the sales figures up. Aficionados of the soulless vehicles, as Rowan Atkinson called them, are busy saying that it's all the government's fault for talking down EVs. But the truth is that there are too many better options out there and most people I know aren't convinced that this is the right time to buy one. I see more Teslas on the back of low loaders being recovered on the roads than anything else. And only last week, the Advertising Standards Authority ruled that BMW cannot market their electric cars as being zero emissions because they actually produce more emissions in their manufacturing process than petrol cars. So the much-heralded electric revolution would appear to have stalled in the slow lane. It's a funny old world of woke.
1: The World of Woke.
2: Now, I've got the panel back with me. I was talking to Kinsey Schofield earlier about Meghan Markle and her new podcasting uh, venture, which is with some company nobody's ever heard of. Um, and they've got it in The uh, the Sun tonight. After claiming she's milking Royal links, Meghan shows off a snap of her wearing Diana's watch. Die and mighty. Mm. It's a sort of strange obsession she's got with Diana, isn't
4: it? I feel it gets her pictured, it gets her noticed, it gets people talking about her, and her important new venture, which will cover the subject she loves to talk about.
2: Um, Meghan Markle.
4: Yeah, um, and will somehow implement her lived experience with those. I love on
2: a new website that she's referred to, presumably by herself, as one of the most influential women in the world. (laughs) I'm not sure that's (laughs) entirely true. But
6: this is the really... It's so fascinating reading how these things are reported because the company Lemonada boasts about having a sought-after listenership, which means rich people. Right. Um, and it and it breaks down its stats and shows that its listeners earn over seventy nine eighty thousand a year. Um, and her Meghan Markle comes out and says that she's really excited to support this female founded initiative. Yes. When you put female founded, it just it's like glosses over so many. Right. You know the fact that actually you, you're in a, a rich business doing rich I things for rich people. Yeah. I
4: disagree. But, I think buzzwords like this used to gloss over it, but now it's become almost a red flag for you're about to enter into something that sounds like the right thing to listen to and the right thing to read, but actually is an elitist
6: faction. Yeah, well, maybe... I mean, normal people probably are smart. (laughs) It's it's another (laughs) box-ticking exercise,
2: isn't it? it, It's a box-ticking exercise because, you know, it it suggests that you should be surprised that there's a company that's been founded by women. Mm. But why would you be? You know, why, why can't women found companies without somebody going, oh, it's a woman-founded company. Well, oh, here's is, a male-founded company over here. This
4: is Megan Shtick, though, I am a woman. Yeah. Because, quite frankly, what else is she?
2: Yeah, well, she's <laughs> a very, very influential individual. Um, let's have a look at something uh, was starting, that started up on the show earlier on. I interviewed uh, the man at the centre of the horrible story this week about the Soho Theatre. Uh, this is Lee Hav Eitan, who spoke to me about how he was basically chucked out of a theatre for
3: being Jewish. you're on the stage and you're holding a mic and you're inciting an entire crowd against two members of the audience, that could get out of hand very quickly. Well, it could have got very,
2: very out of hand very quickly. I mean, imagine
3: if somebody had grabbed you or there had been some physical confrontation. I think it is very likely that if we had refused to leave the space, if we had lingered for over a minute, I think it would have come to physical violence. Um, And just because he's an Israeli,
5: I find that extraordinary. As we were saying earlier, this is, again, about the normalisation of anti-Semitism in Mm. Britain. It's one of the most depressing stories you can hear. And, again, I I think, you know, we can overplay um, sort of historical comparisons we were talking about earlier. But, really, this does remind one of the 1930s and what it was like for Jewish people in various different European countries, particularly in Nazi Germany. And, And funnily enough, Gary Lineker
2: hasn't tweeted that. No, quite. I, I don't know what he's tweeted about on this... No, I don't show. either. He's blocked me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get to see his amazing tweets. Um, but, yeah, it's a horrid story, but, I mean, we'll follow it up, obviously, because the guy's supposed to be playing another show in Glasgow um, and they're currently reviewing whether or not they're going to let him do it.
6: Well, he should be let to do it, but then mm. there should uh, you know, there should be protests outside and he's, he should be let known how about what he did was yeah. so wrong. I mean, the thing about the sort of guilt by association thing... Obviously, anti-Semitism is the main driver of it, but there's, it reminds me of the sort of attacks of um, against, you know, Russian artists at the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. Yeah. There's a suggestion that because you are from a nation, yeah. you automatically represent everything that the governing mm. party yes. of that nation is is really stands stupid. for. Which is really stupid. Which is ridiculous. But it's ignorance. I mean, yeah, the, whole, the whole point ridiculous.
2: of what happened to him was that it was an ignorant thing that, that was done by the, by the comedian initially. And then it was an ignorant thing that the audience then did to join in and sort of hound him out of a. It was theatre. pretty malicious, I think. Yeah, I think terrible. ignorance probably underplays it. Well, yeah,
6: very malicious, and it's happening a lot. I mean, in Ireland, there was the news um, that broke of the Irish girls, young girls, basketball team refusing to shake yes. hands with the Israelis. Yeah, which is just—it's just not just just pointless, horrible, and, and pointless crap. Yeah, mm.
2: exactly right. One final story. We've only got probably twenty seconds to do it. NHS nurses crisis uh, on the front page of the Daily Mirror. I didn't think that was news. I thought that was just an ongoing scenario. They've obviously found a new crisis. Apparently fears for the health service student medic numbers plummet.
6: Thousands, thousands less are applying. Mm. One, it's because they've taken away, you know, they've changed the rules on the bursaries. Two, they've turned it into degrees, which
2: is not what people
6: want to do. And also, you know, who would want to be a nurse at the moment? The pay as well. The pay still is
4: sensitive of what they're, they're worth.
2: Absolutely right. Absolute nightmare. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed. That's all from me tonight. Uh, You've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you to all of my guests. Thank you to you three particularly. Uh, I will see you tomorrow back here at 8pm, of course. It's only on Talk TV. I'll see you then. Good night.